0: The passage this morning is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you this morning for uh, the clarity of the message received, Lord, um, that it can be delivered and expounded upon in uh, many words, or it can be reduced uh, to a very few, Lord, uh, in its essence. Uh, We're thankful that uh, your people have been, since their uh, beginnings, Lord, obsessed with your gospel, Lord, and that they have delivered it to us, Lord, in the scriptures, by the power of your spirit, uh, to us in in many different ways, Lord. Uh, People in the Old Testament, Uh, believing gospel promises that would later be fulfilled in Christ, Lord, and then in the New Testament, the gospel uh, revealed and clarified in Jesus Christ, uh, Lord, and we're thankful for this passage today. Uh, I pray that uh, everyone here uh, would see something beautiful of you, something that um, maybe was uh, far from their minds when they walked in this morning, Uh, Lord, especially, Lord, for those who do not know you who are here. We pray that you would work on them, Lord, and help them to see the eternal uh, beauty, Lord, of the work that Christ did once for all. Lord, uh, I just pray that you'd bless the teaching, Lord, and bless us uh, as we go out this week to carry this message with us, Lord, that it would overflow from our hearts into the rest of our lives, into our words and our actions. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. It would, be, it would be
1: pretty hard to imagine a, a worship meeting that, that set the stage more perfectly for a sermon than, than this morning's did. Uh, the, the discussion about Christ making us who deserve only to be cast as far away from the presence of our holy God as he can cast us, Christ making us to stand in his presence spotless and blameless for all eternity, that is good news. And that's what, that's what our passage and our interaction this morning is going to be about. How many of you came to church this morning in a car, truck, van, or SUV? That pretty much covers motor vehicles. The, the, the vehicle that you rode in or drove to get here this morning is actually a very complex piece of machinery. It's the product of more than 100 years of development of automotive technology, of Lots of research, of, of knowledge built upon knowledge. Even if you don't like your car, it is a complex critter, right? And whether you are a good driver or a bad driver, the simple reality is that as complex as that car is, what you need to know about it in order to, to make full use of it is actually very simple. You put gas, or now electricity in it, to fuel it. You turn it on, you put it in gear, you push one pedal to make it go and another pedal to make it stop, and you use the wheel that's standing in front of you to to, to point it where you want it to go, right? Well, that's true, there are a lot of other. But just to, to get the car to do what it's supposed to do, you know, it's not rocket science, right? Your car is very complex, but receiving the benefit that the car was created to produce is very simple. Well, we're not here to talk about cars. We're here to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is a there is a, a point at which that, that little analogy bears very directly on the gospel. Because... <laughs> if your car is complex, the gospel of Jesus Christ is infinitely more complex. In the broadest sense, the entire Bible is the gospel. The redemption story that the Bible presents is grounded in magnificent transcendent truths that far exceed anything that your or my feeble minds can can even scratch the surface of. Things like The incarnation of the invisible God. Invisible in the form of visible human flesh. Not just the form, but the reality. Truths like the kenosis, the temporary setting aside by Christ of the glories that eternally belong only to Him among all men in order to accomplish our salvation. Truths like the the forsaking of God the Son by God the Father at the cross. These are things that that we see and we can can embrace as true, but we, we can't even begin to comprehend the gravity of them, right? But friends, you and I do not have to comprehend such matters in order to be saved to the uttermost. What you and I must know and believe in order to receive the full benefit of the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand. I've told the story before that when I went, went on the Campus Crusade Spring Break Project at Daytona Beach, we saw a six-year-old girl get saved, go into her, her parents' RV, share the gospel with them, and when they came out of the RV, they had both been saved through her witness. And they, they were crystal clear on the gospel. Mark 10, verse 15, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. The simple message that you and I must receive with childlike trust in order to be saved is right here in front of us in this passage. As my brother Kerry pointed out this morning, Paul says, you want to know what the gospel is? Here it is. He says, "Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news." And then he, he says, "The news that I preach to you, the good news which you received, and we know from John 1:12 and 13, that to receive the gospel is to believe, means to believe in the gospel. That's how we receive it. The gospel in which you also stand." and that was the focus of our worship this morning, was it not? We stand. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now stand. We, we, we are perfect. We are, we are seen by God with the righteousness of Christ now and for all eternity. We stand. And then he says, by which you were saved. And he's talking there about salvation in the, in the grand, full sense everything that touches our salvation. The repetition of the plural you there, which you received in which you stand, by which you were saved, is very significant. This is very personal. Uh, receiving the good news is not a matter of, of believing something that applies to someone else. Receiving the good news is believing that it applies to you and to me personally. Paul could not be any clearer here. He's he's saying what I'm about to lay out for you here is the gospel. It's every blessing and benefit that the gospel brings to sinners has been made yours through your faith in this message. In this message. Here in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains that this gospel is a message that he received. He didn't come up with it. No other man came up with it. It came to Paul from God, or more precisely, it came to Paul directly from the resurrected Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul says that very directly. He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that revelation that Paul received in a little bit. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul proceeds to set forth this gospel in four very straightforward that clauses. First, he says, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins. And then he says, according to the scriptures. And when he says, according to the scriptures, he means just like the Old Testament said he would. And the second that clause is that he was buried. And again, it's just like the Old Testament said he would be. Third, that he was raised on the third day, just as the Old Testament said he would be. And finally, he appeared to many people after he, after he was raised from the dead. Now I want you to notice for a minute how much of the real estate here is devoted to the appeared part. Okay, we're going to have a lot to say about that. Next week, guys, next week, we're going to devote that, that message to the according to the scriptures part. To, to what when Paul says, that these things happen just as the Old Testament said that they would, That's huge there are a lot of people who leave that out of their gospel message we need to leave it in especially in this day and age because the greatest apologetic the greatest proof of the veracity of the Bible is the Bible guys it is the the beautiful perfect linear revelation of this person and work of Jesus Christ from the beginning of the Bible the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament so we're going to take a It'll be a sampling, not a comprehensive presentation, but we're going to take a, a look at, at that according to the Scriptures part next week. So this, our title this week is, The Good News is Clear News. Next week, the good news is Old News. The first thing that we must not... And by the way, I'd encourage you to bring something to write on next week. You're going to want to know what we talk about. The first thing we must not miss about the good news is that it's News. It's news. The gospel that sinners must believe in order to be saved is a message. It's a set of propositions revealed by God and found in infallible, unadulterated form in only one place. The Bible. To believe in Jesus, we must believe that. To believe in, we must believe that the marvelous truths concerning Jesus that the Bible alone reveals are indeed absolutely true. Now, that might strike you as a no-brainer, but it's amazing to me how much agonizing there has been over the entire history of the Church of Jesus Christ over the perceived insufficiency of believing propositional truth that the Bible presents about Jesus. We treat believing in Jesus as if it's something far more profound, far more transforming than believing that the good news concerning Jesus is true. But I would challenge you by saying that the Bible does not recognize any such distinction between believing in and believing that. And when we make that distinction, guys, we, we mess with the simplicity of the gospel. I'm not saying that people, that people can believe stuff about God without being saved. I'm saying if a, if a man or a woman or a child actually believes that the promises of the gospel are true, he or she is saved. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, which is entirely about the substitutionary atoning death, resurrection, and exaltation of the suffering servant of God, Jesus which was written 700 years before He came and fulfilled it, before Jesus came and fulfilled it, that chapter begins with these words. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, Jesus, the arm of the Lord, is made known. He is personally revealed to those who believe the message about Him. Are you with me? In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul proclaims, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the message. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the message, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. <laughs> Earlier in this epistle of Corinthians, Paul said the word of the cross is foolishness to the world, but to us who belong to Christ, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. It's not just another message, guys. It is infused with the living and active power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. In John 5.24, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but his past has crossed over out of death into life. The Gospel is good news. It is the witness of the Father and the Spirit and the Son to the Son. If you believe that witness not as it applies to people in general or to someone else, but as it applies to you, then you are trusting in Jesus, the Son of God as your Savior, and you now stand forever righteous in the eyes of God, saved to the uttermost. All right, let's dive in the, into the four, these four essential propositions that make up the glorious message that must be believed in order for sinners to be saved the first thing that you and i must notice and that we must believe in order to be saved is that christ died for our sins but there's another indispensable element in that statement and it's in the first word christ jesus the one who died for our sins is the Christ. We're going to start there. The word Christ comes from the Greek New Testament equivalent of the Hebrew Old Testament word Mashiach or Messiah. John's Gospel comes right out and points out that connection. In John chapter 1, after Andrew and, and John, the apostle, had met Jesus, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, ran to his his brother Simon and he, he said to him, we have found the Messiah. And then John the Apostle, who wrote the gospel, puts in parentheses which translated means Christ. He equates Messiah with Christ. The one's Hebrew, one's Greek. The same word means the same thing. And what it means is anointed one. It's applied in the Old Testament to kings and priests who were singled out by God to fulfill those roles of kings and priests. But when Andrew said to his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, he was talking about the long-promised Messiah, the anointed king of kings in the line of David, whom the prophets over and over declared, would come at, it, at the time appointed by God and would reign over all the nations in perfect justice and righteousness. We find in the Old Testament that before he does that, before he reigns over the whole earth, he has to populate his kingdom with lost sinners and so he has to come and die. In order to be saved, sinners must hear and believe the witness of God that Jesus is the Christ. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the apostle John writes, he says, I could have included a lot of other signs in in my gospel. But he says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In Matthew 16, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter rightly responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the first chapter of John's Gospel that I already mentioned, just before Andrew declared of Jesus that he is the Messiah, John the Baptist declared something else about Jesus. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah, the long promised Messiah, is also the Savior. Jesus, the Lord of glory, came from heaven to earth to die. He came to bear upon himself the debt that sinners like you and me and every other human being who has ever walked this earth except Jesus owe to God. That debt is eternal and it's infinite, it is immeasurable. If you and I have to pay it ourselves, eternity will not be long enough. It's a debt that we can't even begin to pay. When I was a teenager, I happily said the words, Jesus died for my sins. But I didn't have a clue what they meant. There may be some of you here today who have used those words and you don't have a clue what they mean. I pray with all my heart that you won't walk out of here today without understanding that and believing the truth. I saw the death of Jesus as some sort of jump start to my own righteousness. It's like he died so that he could meet me halfway. And I had to fill the gap of you know whatever he didn't do for me. And so I worked really hard to cover my part of that proposition. I went to confirmation classes. I got baptized. I became an altar boy. I wore The robes and I lit the candles and I sat beside the pastor every Sunday morning. But in my heart of hearts, I knew that my pretense of righteousness was a pathetic lie. I wasn't even satisfying my standard of righteousness, much less the standard of the perfectly holy God who made me and everything else. But I was not willing to admit it until I heard the rest of the gospel. I, wasn't, I was not ready to admit the bad news until I heard the good news. And I've told you guys before, it was my high school biology teacher who took me aside and told me the whole story. In order to receive the good news, I had to receive the bad news, I had to accept it, and the bad news was way, way worse than I had even begun to imagine. Just like all of you, I had violated the holy and righteous character of God in more ways and at more times than I would ever be able to even remember. I had been spiritually dead, enslaved to sin from the day that I was born, and just like you, I was utterly powerless to do anything about that problem. I stood before God with nothing to offer except debt. That's the problem with being spiritually dead. The only thing on your resume and the only thing on your balance sheet is your eternal sin debt to God. That's all you've got. That's the bad news and it's as bad as bad gets because the the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from the presence and the power of God in everlasting punishment you don't have to like that but that's what God says that's what Jesus said that's the truth the bad news is as bad as it bad gets but the good news is the best news ever Jesus died for our sins The perfect sinless son of God bore upon himself all of the guilt and all of the penalty that belonged to us. And everyone who puts their faith in him has that payment applied to their account. His lifeblood poured out for us is the one and only sufficient payment for our sinful rebellion against God. The reason that most human beings, most human beings, and that's the way Jesus said it would be, the reason that most people will never believe the gospel is not because it's too complicated to understand. It is because the gospel demands that we agree with God that we deserve only eternal condemnation. It's hard to get people to agree with that. The gospel demands that you and I agree with God that we all started out this earthly existence spiritually dead in Adam, eternally condemned, and absolutely incapable of doing anything to fix that. Beloved, if I should say, friends, if you have not embraced that truth about yourself, you are not saved. You still bear your sins upon yourself. If you do not agree with God about what, he, what Jesus saves sinners from, then you have not been saved. But one of the questions I ask people when I share the gospel all the time is, what do you deserve from God? Because if they say, oh, not much, or if they say nothing, I say, it's way worse than that. The first thing that a sinner must believe in order to be saved is that Jesus, the long-promised Christ, died for his sins, and he has to agree with God about his sins. The second thing that a sinner must believe in order to be saved is that Christ was buried, just like the Old Testament said he would be. My brother Paul Johannan pointed out to me earlier this week that there's a critical connection between the first two that clauses and the second to that clauses in this, in this four-clause passage. The fact that Jesus was buried and lay in a grave for three days after having his body wrapped in multiple layers of cloth and soaked in nearly 100 pounds of oil and spices, which is what, it's exactly what John 19 says, the fact that he was buried in a grave for three days after thus being thus prepared was the final element of proof that he died. Now, there was plenty of proof at the cross that he died, like the spear going through his heart and blood and water flowing out. But that was the final proof. And the fact that the resurrected Jesus appeared, that's the third and fourth of that clauses that we're about to see, was the final compelling proof that he was in fact raised from the dead Jesus died physically he was physically buried he was bodily resurrected from the dead that third indispensable proposition of the gospel is that he was raised Jesus was resurrected on the third day just like the old testament said he would be Paul's going to devote 46 verses of this same chapter, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, 46 verses to the benefit that we who believe in Jesus receive because he was raised from the dead. He's going to talk about the guarantee that we will be raised because he was raised. Here, he just states the fact. Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Without the resurrection of Christ, the death of Christ would be the greatest tragedy in the history of the world instead of the greatest victory in the history of the world. That's quite a difference, wouldn't you say? In Romans 1, verse 4, Paul says, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. By raising Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit proclaimed to the world that this Jesus of Nazareth is who the prophets claimed him to be, who the apostles claimed him to be, who his Father declared him to be, and who he declared himself to be. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There was another thing that the, that the resurrection proclaimed. In Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, again written nearly 700 years before Jesus came and fulfilled it, Isaiah said this about the substitutionary sacrifice, the guilt offering of Jesus Christ. He said, the Lord Yahweh was pleased to crush Him, Messiah, the suffering servant, putting Him to grief. If He would render Himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He, the Father, will prolong his days and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. By raising Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit proclaimed to the world that for all who trust in Jesus, his death has forever satisfied the wrath of God that sinners fully deserve. He bore that wrath in our place. That payment is not applied unless we believe Without the the resurrection of Christ, we would not know that God the Father was and will always be satisfied with that payment. When Jesus said, it is finished, that's what He meant. The fourth indispensable proposition of the good news is that Christ appeared. Christ appeared to very many people after He was raised from the dead. It's not uncommon for teachers and pastors to treat this last point as if it's kind of peripheral to the gospel message, as if you can can include it if you want to, you can not include it if you don't want to when you share the gospel. I am absolutely convinced that no first-generation Christian would have even considered not talking about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ when they shared the gospel with somebody. This is the fourth of four parallel that clauses by which Paul sets forth the indispensable essence of the gospel. That which must be believed in order for a sinner to be saved. We must believe that the resurrected Christ showed himself to lots of people. This can't be overstated. Paul devotes four verses to the proclamation that Jesus appeared to many after He was raised from the dead, do you realize that's the most space devoted in this passage to any of the four essential parts of the Gospel? In fact, if you include the verses in which Paul expands on on his own personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus, it's eight verses, not four. Why is this so important? Paul and God mean for us to know that in order to be saved, sinners must hear and believe that the the resurrected Jesus appeared in real space and time to many people after he died. Paul cites four distinct appearances of the resurrected Christ. He says, verse 5, he appeared to to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and then to the 12. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Four times Paul uses the word appeared. These were certainly not the only appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. They're just the four that Paul chooses to mention. We know, for instance, from Matthew 27 that Jesus appeared also to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of James, as, or very early that Sunday morning as those two ladies were running toward Jerusalem to tell the disciples that Jesus' tomb was empty. Acts chapter 1 says of those who were gathered in Jerusalem at Mount Olivet who beheld the ascension of Jesus It says, verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. And that word convincing, King James gets it right. It says infallible. Many irrefutable proofs. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. When Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15.6 that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, you know what his point is? His point is, you can go ask them if you want to. He's saying most of the ones that saw him resurrected are still around. Go ask them. Now, if you think, well, okay, Corinth's a long way from Jerusalem, the Corinthians wouldn't have had any, any actual experience of what happened. Guys, Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead during the week-long observance of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread when Jews from all over the Roman Empire came to Jerusalem for that great festival. And Corinth was one of the hubs, it was one of the metropolitan hubs of the Roman Empire with lots of Jews. There were absolutely people from Corinth who were there in Jerusalem when these things happened? Absolutely. And of course, Paul wasn't merely passing along secondhand information here. <laughs> he had himself directly received a visit from the resurrected Jesus that changed him entirely and forever. As Paul says here in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15, at the time that Jesus appeared to him, He, Paul, who was then known as Saul of Tarsus, was a zealous and militant persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. His encounter with the resurrected Jesus happened when he, Saul, was on his way to the city of Damascus to find Christians to arrest and to bring back in chains to Jerusalem so that hopefully, as he saw it, they could be stoned to death just like Stephen had been. In Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us what his life was like in the time leading up to his encounter with the resurrected Christ. He says, you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying I was the zealot of zealots. I hated Christians more than anybody I knew. And I did more about it than anybody I knew. The fire that fueled Paul's obsessive zeal was a fierce hatred of Christians whom he saw as an intolerable threat to the traditions and the authority of the Jewish religious leaders the Roman authorities had apparently raised no fuss over the stoning to death of a devout Christ follower named Stephen by the Jews that's recorded in Acts chapter 7. Paul was there that day at that stoning people who threw stones laid their robes at Paul's feet I believe Paul was a ringleader of that event and Saul of Tarsus, as he was called at that point, was the hatchet man for the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. He no doubt saw the fact that the Romans had not paid much attention to the stoning of Stephen as a wide open door to go after more Christians. To ratchet up the prosecution and execution of Christ followers. But in a single day, as is typical of the decisive victories of our great God and Savior, God transformed the fiercest enemy of the church of Jesus Christ into the man who was arguably the most influential ambassador for Christ that this world has yet seen. The transformation of Saul of Tarsus from Christ-hater to Christ-bearer, who gave up his freedom and then eventually his head for his master and savior is all by itself one of the most marvelous and compelling proofs of the resurrection of Jesus but there were many like him many people have died for causes that they steadfastly believed to be true but only a fool would die for a cause that he knows to be false Especially when that cause brings upon him all of the measureless hardship that Paul faced for being an agent of Christ in the world. Paul was one of many who laid down their freedom and their very lives to proclaim Christ as the crucified and resurrected son of the living God and Savior of mankind. People are still laying down their lives for that proclamation. God means for all of us to do that. The early chapters of uh, F.F. Bruce's classic book history of the early church called The Spreading Flame describes the miraculous prosperity of the gospel of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire, even as Christians were systematically persecuted, prosecuted, and executed for proclaiming the gospel message. Friends, without the appearances of the resurrected Christ, the wildfire of the gospel would have just been a flash in a pan. It would have been easily extinguished before it gained any traction. Unlike other ideologies and religions that have become widely accepted among men, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not promise or bring to its proponents the things that drive human causes. It was not spread through the promise of health, wealth, prosperity, security, or even social justice in this life. Instead, what it brought to those who spread, the message was the opposite of all of those longings of mankind. In its genuine form, it was never spread at the point of a sword. It was spread instead through the mere testimony of radically transformed witnesses who never changed that testimony even under the threat of death. It was not spread by men of great influence, but by fishermen and tax collectors and redeemed prostitutes and discredited rabbis. In his very concise book about his own transformation from skeptic to Christ follower, book titled more than a carpenter josh mcdowell cites numerous legal and forensic experts big names in the legal community who have found the evidence for the bodily death and resurrection of jesus to be irrefutable he cites simon greenleaf who was one of the greatest legal minds america has produced and while while greenleaf was still a highly renowned professor of law at harvard He wrote a volume in which he examines the legal value of the apostles' testimony to the resurrection of Christ. He observes that it is impossible that the apostles, quote, could have persisted in affirming the truths that they narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. The British defense attorney Sir Lionel LeCoux, is considered by many to be the the world's most successful, one of the world's most successful attorneys after 245 consecutive murder acquittals. This brilliant lawyer rigorously analyzed the historical facts of Christ's resurrection, and he declared... Quote, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. He's not talking about no room for reasonable doubt. He's talking about no room for any doubt. When I was very new to the Christian faith, and you guys bear with me another couple of minutes. When I was very new to the Christian faith, personally, I read a book by another British attorney who had set out to debunk the notion of the bodily resurrection of Jesus based on forensic evidences. His name was Frank Morrison. Some of you old Christians know the book, Who Moved the Stone? He applied the same principles of forensic assessment of evidence that he regularly applied in the courtroom to the evidence proposed for Christ's resurrection, but instead of finding support for his view as an atheist that the resurrection of Jesus was a silly myth, he ended up utterly convinced that the evidence demands belief in the historical fact of Christ's death and resurrection. He became a Christian and he wrote the bestseller, Who Moved the Stone? Friends, please hear me. Don't ever buy in to the ridiculous anti-biblical assertion That in order to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to put your reason on a shelf. That you have to engage in some kind of blind leap of faith, putting all evidence aside. That is utter nonsense. That's an insult to the God who has given many irrefutable proofs that His Son is the King and Lord and Savior of mankind. Let's not engage in that kind of nonsense. The one and only way that a sinner comes to the humility to embrace the undeniable witness of God to the Son through countless irrefutable proofs is for God to give him or her the humility to do that. It doesn't come naturally. I say again, what keeps people from embracing Jesus is not that the message is too complex or that it's not compelling enough. It is that people do not want to admit that they are lost, dead sinners who have only one way to be acceptable to God. The conclusion is very simple. The good news is clear and compelling news. That the unambiguous assertion of Paul in this great passage is that the Christ, the Messiah, King, and Savior of mankind, prophesied throughout the Old Testament, came. Just as the prophets said he would. And he did all that the prophets said that he would do. He fulfilled more than 300 messianic prophecies the first time he came. He lived the only sinless life ever lived by a man. He died a humiliating, violent, and terrible death on a cross in the place of sinners like you and me just as the prophet said he would. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man, just as the prophet said he would be. On the third day, he was raised from the dead, just as the prophet said that he would be. And he appeared to very many people before he ascended back to his rightful place at the right hand of his Father on high. His sacrifice of himself in our place is the only Sufficient payment that will ever exist for our infinite sin debt to God. And His perfect righteousness that now clothes everyone who trusts only in Him. His righteousness is the only righteousness that will ever qualify any human being to stand in the presence of our perfectly holy God. And stand, we will, because of Jesus. This is the person and completed work that you and I and every other human being are commanded by God to alone believe in order to be eternally saved. We've been given the good news. Many, I hope most in this room, believe that news. Any who don't, I pray that you will by the gracious work of God. We who believe now bear this good news, the best news ever, to a world full of people who need to know it more than they will ever need to know anything else the good news is clear news so let's get the news out dear heavenly father your gospel is beautiful thank you for making the good news of jesus christ both clear and undeniable grant us a love for the lost and a zeal for the gospel For any who hear this message who have not believed the word of the cross, we ask you, Father, to do your miraculous and transforming work in their hearts just as you did in Paul's heart, just as you did in my heart, just as you have done in the heart of every child of yours in every generation of your church across this whole earth. You are the Lord of the harvest. Make us good planters and waters and pickers. (laughs) as we rely on you alone to give the life of Christ to dead sinners like we once were as we simply proclaim the good news
0: of Jesus Christ to this world it's in his name that we pray amen